This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. I'm joined this week by Marley Mezabov, who wrote the chapter Design for Content First. Welcome, Marley. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so can you take a moment and introduce yourself, please? Sure. I'm Marley Mezabov. I am a content strategist. Uh, I work at Verily Life Sciences, which is a health and technology company uh, within the Alphabet family. Um, there, I oversee content for a couple of different of our health platforms. And um, yeah, I really just focus on, you know, as I, as I tell my young nieces, I make the words that the doctors say make sense to the human beings. Nice. That sounds like quite the challenge. <laughs> Depends on the doctor, but yeah, sometimes. Yep. Cool. And so can you tell folks about your career trajectory? How did you discover UX and how did you wind up where you are today? Sure. So for me personally, it's funny because there's kind of two stories to the career trajectory. There's the how I got into UX, which is what you directly asked. Uh, and that was a complete coincidence. I was I was about as lucky as lucky can be. Right. I had bounced around, you know, I, I started in theater and I was stage managing and uh, working in some films and commercials as a PA. And a friend said, you know, you could actually sleep at night and have, you know, better hours and, and see your friends who don't work in those fields if you tried out software instead. And hmm. the first job I got in software I was working for somebody who wanted to get into this UX idea and he knew something about it, but everybody he was finding to hire was not in UX. So he basically hired talented people and said, you know how to write, you know how to design, you know how to manage stuff. Here's a bunch of conferences. Let's go to them and learn what we're doing hmm. when it comes to this whole user-centered idea. Yeah. And he was right. You know, if you hire people who are interested and invested in that idea of being user-centered, we started going to, I think, UIE, this is going to date me, but maybe UIE 15, 13 was the first one I went to. And mm -hmm. and I went to that conference and uh, Christina Halverson was giving a talk. I'll, I'll never forget this. She was talking about the voice and tone that comes through on the Ben & Jerry's website. Mm. And she showed how keywords that they use become a part of a personality. And then she showed us a, a terms and conditions page that was just so clearly not in that same voice. And I went, yes, words that make people think and make people feel, that's me, that's what I want to do. Right. And then the other side of that is, at the same time, I'd, I'd been interested for a long time in working in healthcare. I'd thought for a while about going to medical school. Of course, I don't do well with needles, so that was pretty much straight out. Um, my brother went to medical school my or to, uh, to become a registered nurse. Uh, it's, it's something that I care deeply about. And uh, while working with First, um, Digitas, and later with MadPow, I got to work with a bunch of different healthcare organizations, and it just opened up for me that that's the area that desperately needs. I mean, it's just it's such a high priority thing. If you, if we're going to quote Princess Bride here, if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. Right. And 
it's so complicated. We do have a very broken system. If there's anywhere that really needs content strategists, people to understand what's the personality that goes along with these words, what's the message we're truly trying to get across, and how do we do that? It's healthcare. You mentioned um, getting into the field by real, you know, realizing that hey, I can write and I can design, and this is this is the way to do it. Um, how did you get into the design portion of that? So maybe, you know, maybe you were a good writer to begin with, but then how did you turn that into the more design world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, something that really I struggled with in my teens and early twenties was the idea that I wasn't really creative. Mm. I had always loved to write, but it came so naturally to me that I assumed that anybody could do it. And there weren't a lot of roles that I saw where somebody who liked writing and was super organized could be creative. I, you know, interned at a uh, children's educational software company and I was a copy editor. And after three months, they were like, yeah, we're kind of done. Everything's been copy edited. Hmm. You know, whereas the designers were there full time, they always needed, they needed illustrators and animators. And I can't, I can barely draw a stick figure. But when I got into UX and realized that so often with UX, while you do find true artists, you also find that some of you know, sort of big D design is communication and is working collaboratively with people who do the more artistic design work uh, to get ideas across and to think through experiences. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, I'm, I'm still certainly not, I'm never going to win an award. I'm never even really going to, I would never sign myself up as a, as a UX designer. Right. Yep. But uh, UX was the first area that I found I could really be part of a creative team because the content is such an integral part and content isn't just the words on the page. It's the videos and it's the message and it's the way that we structure the information. You know, it's the way we yep. communicate. It's, it's interesting what you said just now uh, is actually a theme that's been happening throughout this podcast of the work is never done. And yeah. there's an older mindset of, right, we put something out into the world and now it's done. I think this first came up in John Robinson's um uh, episode, but the way you just described it, it's the same thing for content. Uh, in the oh, older absolutely. way of thinking about it, it was copy editing, and now we're done. But now you got content strategy. Yeah, very much so. Yep. Um, great. Let's turn to your chapter. Uh, so, design for content first. Can you uh, tell us about that, please? Yeah, this is something that is very near and dear to my heart. The first. I don't know, in an agency, was it the first 20 projects, the first 100 projects that you touch? Again, I was very lucky. I wasn't just lucky that I happened to hear Christina Halverson speak. I wasn't just lucky that I was hired by somebody who was willing to give me a chance, who was willing to train me. I was also lucky with the timing. Mm -hmm. That talk was the first time that there had been a content talk at a UX conference. It was the year before the first Confab conference happened, which at the time was... I, one of the first content strategy conferences to ever exist. Mm -hmm. It is still one of the most sought after, one of the absolute best content strategy conferences. And so I was able to find this core group of people who were kind of figuring it out as they went along. The common theme was that people had found a problem and they were figuring out how to solve it. So the first 20 or 100 projects that I touched as a 
quote, content person, which was sometimes a copywriter and was sometimes a project manager who had this weird interest in making the words sound good. Those projects, basically the reason I wasn't working as a content strategist yet, the reason most places weren't hiring content strategists is because nobody was interested in paying money to think about content up front. Right. Right. They would hire a design team, and then at the very end, they would say, wait, these templates don't work for the content that we have. Could somebody fix it? Right. And this term started going around, this idea that, like, well, we have to be content first. And it meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But over the years, I've identified that it can mean something very proactive because you can be content first in mindset, meaning from the second that you first look at designs, you're at, at you're thinking in terms of what needs to be a template. What needs to, what content do I have that needs to be accounted for? What does my audience need to see and read and hear that is going to help them accomplish this goal? Mm-hmm. But it can also mean a very specific set of steps. And I think that there's a, still to this day, Uh, a gap for a lot of teams that they say, okay, well, we think content first, but we still end up at the end of the project, you know, scrambling for time to do our reviews. It it turns out that we need a subject matter expert, or it turns out that we didn't account for that template. And um, turns out that all the good mindsets in the world are not nearly as helpful as having a bit of a checklist to go by a couple steps. So when I wrote this chapter, I wanted to do my part to put those steps into something concrete and say, great, you want to be content first. You want to design content first. You've got the mindset. You know it's important. Fantastic. Here's what you have to do. Yep. Yep. And content first, it's interesting that when when content first came about, I think the previous thing that we were thinking about was mobile first. Yes. Um, and so we switched from mobile first to content first. And since then, though, it has stuck, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of like, what is first? And to your point, we have to start with those templates. What is the content and build around that? So it's interesting that that did stick. Yeah. And I, I also think there's a bit of there's sometimes a misconception that, you know, even the content team gets really overwhelmed. Like content first, you want me to write everything before we ever start? And like, no, no, no. Right, right. We just need to identify what are the priorities going to be. We need to do an audit and say what exists today that you're going to have to account for. Is this a redesign or is this totally fresh stuff or is it a mix thereof? If this yep. is an app, are we partnering with other organizations that have content already? If it's a dashboard, what what does the user research tell us about what people need and what they're trying to do? Are we, uh, what's our mental model, right? Are we trying to be more transactional? Are we trying to be educational, informational? Are we a place where you come for five minutes a day or a place where you spend an hour once a week? All yeah. of those things weigh into eventually what, I mean, I think designers may sometimes fear that this means that they're just, you know, coloring in the boxes, but that's not it at all. It's making sure that the designer has all of this great information to allow them to be super creative and super innovative uh, because they know what constraints there are and they know what those goals are, what the, what the messages need to be, what content needs to be accounted for. Yep. Focusing on the right thing, which is the key message that we want users to have. Exactly. Yeah. How about those steps? Uh, can you dig in a little bit about those steps and what designers can mm-hmm. do to, you know, 
be more mindful of content strategy? Absolutely. I so different teams are going to have different variations on this again depending on if we're talking a website an app new uh, a new thing a redesigned thing i uh, there's a, a lot of variation but at its core the very first thing that everybody and the team needs to gather around is understanding the audience segments and what mm-hmm. their top needs are right we yep. can't design something if we don't know who we're designing for and what what that audience wants uh, and needs to do. I think a lot of teams traditionally have stopped there and said, great, now this informs us. But uh, content first means taking that step farther. I recommend the team prioritize what those needs are, literally assigning each one a number. And I'll, Mm. you know, people will say, well, these are all number one. And I'm like, well, then make them 1A, 1B, 1C, and then rename the B and C to two and three. (laughs) They can be very, very close. But ultimately, particularly when we think of things like mobile or Apple Watches or all these different ways that content comes across, sometimes you got to prioritize. So if gun to your head, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, you can go up to 10, whatever. Uh, And then... When you come to a specific screen or a space in your flow, you step aside from those needs and you figure out just one or two sentences, a very concise message about what do you want somebody to come away from this moment, from this screen, Mm. from this page, from this whatever it is with. And it probably isn't they can do this. It's probably a feeling that they'll have a um, and it's not usually a feeling about the organization, right? Like they will feel that we're very trustworthy. It will be something more like um, they will feel ready to make a decision on this. So once you've got that message, use that message to identify which of the needs connect to the message instead mm-hmm. of vice versa. Yep. So we've got our message. We've said, this is the area where somebody, the, the screen, the page, the, the step where our audience uh, will feel ready to make a decision. And we know that their top needs are um, building trust, which we get through testimonials and um, connecting to support. Mm. That, that was one and two. And then you can design the page to support the message and those needs. So then at that point, it really goes fully to the, to the UX designer who may say, oh, well, the best way to make sure that being able to connect to our support staff all the time is to put that in the sidebar. Or, okay, well, that means that our header should be as close to this message, but in better sort of marketing speak as right. possible. Or... Um, you know, we were going to give them 15 choices, but if we want them, if the message is that they're really ready, then maybe we want to uh, work on some functionality that will narrow those choices for them. Yep. There's a lot of decisions that can come out of that really simple, just prioritize the needs, figure out which needs connect to your message, and maybe it's needs number eight and nine. And that's okay, Right. You may want to go back and figure out if somewhere you're connecting to need number one. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's all about it's all about just thinking about that message and what we're getting across. 
That's really interesting. So, you know, coming back to those Ds, right? That's the core, the user needs are the core of, you know, what we're going to focus the content around. Mm-hmm. When we're doing that initial user research, you know, that that strategic research when we're trying to find out what those needs are, mm-hmm. are there things that, you know, is there a way to approach that in your mind in terms of the questions we could be asking users for their needs or a way to be oh, doing gosh. that? I feel like you're quizzing me on a project we did a couple of years ago. We tried to come up with a list of uh, of everything that that on the content side I wanted to learn from from research you were doing. Um, I mean, the short answer is yes, of course. Okay. There's there's always information that we're going to want to learn. Um, I think one of the key things that I always try to learn from those initial items is the difference between this the sort of this there's this behavior change um, concept or behavioral economics concept that what people see far away, uh, like it's the metaphor is like a a city far away, all the buildings look the same size, Mm -hmm. but as you get up close, some are much higher priority than others. And so I always get really curious, what would somebody tell you that they're hypothetical? I would do this. I would want this is. And then what about when you give them a situation that says right now, what do you want? What do you need? Yep. And comparing those two, noticing the difference between what would entice them and what would help them in the moment. Uh, I also look a lot for what language somebody uses. Uh, we get in the habit internally of referring to organizational groups by their sort of internal monikers. And they often don't connect to what our audience refers to them as. Um, we recently at Verily uh, renamed our user success team. If you had to guess what the user success team does, any guesses? No. <laughs> making <laughs> making making the user uh, successful yeah, and getting it's their... customer support. Oh 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 no! Right, and so and so it makes sense once you say it, but but when we realize that that's not, we don't want that to trickle into our language. Right. We don't want to start referring to things. And the same thing is true, is, is like even more important when we're, when we're building something, when we're designing something that people are going to need to use, particularly, again, particularly in healthcare, when you've got health literacy to consider and people being like just incredibly stressed. This is like the most, you know, this can literally be life and death. And even if it's not, it can feel life or death. Right. Um, you mentioned the, the language or even the tone um, mm-hmm. that, that you're using. How do you, you know, capture the way that you want the, the people who come after you in the design process to convey that language and tone? Is there a way that makes other people really, you know, understand what, mm-hmm. what you're hoping for? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of guidelines, big fan of documentation, but also sharing documentation in a way that gets people to get used to using it. Hmm. So I'm... Um, there are a couple of great examples out there. Uh, 18F, the um, government UX agency, does a fantastic job with their voice and tone guidelines. And and typically, voice and tone gets at voice is personality, right? Like you, Dan, are the same person no matter where you are. But your tone is going to be different when you are doing this podcast from when you're catching up with your nephew. Right. And so similarly, an organization, although it's two-dimensional, so I often compare it to a character rather than a person, right? We can't swear that we will always feel the same way about Brad Pitt, but we will always feel the same way, like his character in Ocean's Eleven is not going to change 
It, yep. it is a moment in time. And your organization is kind of two-dimensional in that way. But similarly to our Ocean's Eleven Brad Pitt, uh, his tone is different when he talks to Tess than when he talks to, I'm only remembering half the characters in this movie, but uh, George Clooney's character. Yep. Um, but again, his, his voice is the same. His, yep. And so... And so similarly, your organization, you want to think about uh, what makes that personality. Now, the key to what makes really good guidelines and makes them usable is that you want to constantly be updating it. Anytime that you're creating something, you want your team to be thinking about what tone am I using right now? And if it's not in here, does that mean that we have a new tone or that I need to readapt? And yeah. every time that you create something that you're proud of, you grab that example and you add it to that page or that section or that area of the wiki on the tone because you want that to be a growing uh just a, a grow a, a growing set of great examples that other that when somebody new is coming in and is like well what does it mean that our tone is um parental but not condescending that could mean a billion different things oh it means that in our email messaging where we are parental but not condescending we congratulate people but we never say i'm sorry for you if they did poorly we always say let's see what we can do now hmm. yeah that makes perfect sense that's that's super interesting um any any other comments about your chapter before we move on uh you know i'm i'm really excited that i was able to be a part of this of this group of this fantastic team of people creating these chapters and I really hope that uh, our, our listeners, new UX practitioners or, or old UX practitioners will share their thoughts and will share um, how, you know, how they're doing it differently or what we can build on together. Content strategy is still a, we're, we're the baby in the room compared mm. to some of these groups that have been around a, a lot longer. Yep. And I think that's reflected in our book as well. I know you and I talked about how for every 50 UX designers who would come up with a topic, you would you had to really search and find who are the content strategy practitioners who felt that they had something really concrete. Yep. So this isn't, you know, this isn't the tried and true, everybody's been doing it forever. This is, hi, I'm Marley. I've been doing this for a decade. And that's half as long as the people who have been doing it the longest, but it's only half as long as right. the people who've been doing right. it the longest. <laughs> so, you know, tell me how you're doing it. Tell me how we can do it differently. Let's keep building and growing the practice. Yep. And that's the mantra of UX in general too, right? Absolutely. Is, you know, critique us. Let's find ways to do this better. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. So, you know, we, we only, we do only have five chapters of content in the book, but it'll be interesting to see how that may grow if we do have a V2 one day. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so how about a piece of advice? Um, is there a piece of advice you'd like to convey to folks either breaking into UX or uh, who have been doing this for a while? I would say go to conferences. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, we, we've had a tough remote year, but remotely or in person, uh, conferences are one of the best ways to learn. I think there's a lot of schools out there offering various courses and yet I've still found that the nice thing about a conference, particularly if you can go in person, is the opportunity to just see such a variety of expertise 
and learn from people who are there finding chatting with the person at dinner who it turns out has been focusing on the same kind of project you are and becomes sometimes a lifelong friend, mm -hmm. sometimes just somebody who has that great piece of advice that you need to hear. It's just, and I, I'm like a hardcore introvert, have to go hide in my hotel room at the end of a day of a conference. And I still have yet to find a better way to learn about UX. Yep. Well, the good news there is that a lot of the people at the UX conferences are introverts too. So we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're in that together. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a great point because a, a, another point of that is that you, you can learn as much from a newcomer than you can as, as a, someone who's been around for a while because of fresh oh, perspectives. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Marley. Um, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. You as well. And uh, so uh, thanks again for joining me, Marley. Uh, Marley Mezabov wrote the chapter Design for Content First in the 97 UX Things book. Hope everyone enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.